You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. I'll use this for now. One of the biggest questions in life, if not the biggest question, is why am I here? You ever ask that question? What's the point of it all? Well, did you know that question is actually asked in the Bible? Uh, there's a man named Solomon whom the Bible actually calls the wisest person to ever live. How about that title? It's not like Moses who said, uh, you know, in the Bible, it's Moses, it says that Moses was the most humble man to ever live in, in the Pentateuch. You know who wrote that? Moses. Um, <laughs> mm, mm, questionable. Mm. You don't write that about yourself. If you, it's the Bible, though, so I got I to accept it. Unlike that text... Solomon is called by someone else in the scriptures, the wisest man to ever live. And he asks this very question, what is the point? Why am I here on this earth? And, you know, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as a journal of sorts to search for life's meaning and life's purpose. And this book, if you read it, is filled with really honest and open reflections on the ups and downs in our lives. Now, if I were to sum up the book of Ecclesiastes into like one phrase, what does the wisest man who ever lived have to say to us about life? Here it is. Here's the one phrase. You ready? Everything is meaningless. Go in grace. Have a great Sunday. (laughs) Leave an offering at the back as you leave. Have a great Vision Sunday. That is it. Everything's pointless. Thanks, Solomon. It's really, really a good pick-me-up. There's a reason you don't read the book of Ecclesiastes on Christian radio very much. Christian radio is much too chipper. Ecclesiastes is way too raw, way too real for Christian radio. You know, someone once said that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by a guy on Monday morning before he had his coffee. Life is meaningless, man. And what we're going to see... as we look, just a brief overview of the whole book and then dive into a, a portion of chapter 4, is Solomon makes three points for us that are so essential as we consider how we prioritize our life and our time. He, he says first that there's a problem, and the problem is that life is empty. It's meaningless. Now, there's a solution that's wrong that people usually take to counter this problem of the emptiness of life, and that is individualistic workaholism. And life's pointless. I don't know what to do. You know what? I'll try and make it worthwhile. I'll try to add value through my career, through overworking. And he's going to say, that's, that's meaningless too. And he's going to present us with the real solution. And that is the fullness of Christ-centered community. That community gives us effectiveness. It gives us help. It gives us comfort. It gives us protection. Let's start with point one, which is really the theme of the whole book. That is the emptiness of life. So that's not how Solomon started out. Life is meaningless. He started out like most young people, a lot more optimistic. You know, Solomon was a mighty king of the nation of Israel around 970 B.C. And he brought Israel to its wealthiest and strongest point in its history. But Solomon's success, like what, there's a lot of successful people in this room. And did you know success is more dangerous than failure? Because success can make you like Solomon, complacent, prideful. Self-reliant. And that's what happened to Solomon. 
He was killing it. And he thought, I'm pretty awesome. And so he began pursuing the pleasures of this world. And this book is him looking back as an old man, reflecting on him, chasing after the wrong things his whole life. Which is kind of surprising to hear because, you know, honestly, Solomon lived the American dream. What most Americans are trying to, to achieve, Solomon achieved with his life. Do you know Solomon had 700 wives and three... Someone woo that? <laughs> Pastor Wilson, we need some counseling for Linda after the service. No woo. No woo. 700 wives is not good. One man, one woman is the, what the Bible says. 700 wives... And he had 300 concubines. Kids, if you don't know what a concubine is, please do not Google that. Ask mom and dad after the service. That's not something you Google. You know, actually, my grandpa had six wives. I thought it was four, but my dad told me last week, actually, it was six, four at one time uh, in the Middle East. He had one for each region, one in Egypt, one in Palestine, one in Jordan, I tried to tell Sherry it was a family tradition. <laughs> like, you're breaking a lineage of history in the Mutazim family by being my sole wife, but she wasn't going for it, so Solomon did it. Didn't work out, though. And I'm very happy with my wife. He had a thousand women. Just imagine, like, I think I'll go with her tonight. It's basically what he did. Scholars estimate that his net worth was uh, equivalent to today's value of at least $1 trillion. So multiply Elon Musk by like five. That's how wealthy this guy was. He was one of the most powerful and successful men in the world. The Bible calls him wise and intelligent, so he's probably got a pretty high IQ. He drank from golden cups, the best wine. He had no nine-to-five job. He had all the little pleasures you wish you could. I mean, did you ever imagine, like, what is it like to ride Uber Black? You know what I'm saying? Like, I always did regular Uber. I just want to feel the comfort of Uber Black once, just to see what I'm missing out on, right? Or just imagine going to Chipotle and saying, you know what? I'm getting the guac and the queso. You only, YOLO, baby, you only live once. I don't care about the bill. Give me both on the burrito. Could you imagine all the little pleasures of life? You know what? We're keeping the thermostat at 70 degrees all day, baby. I don't care if our heating bill is $300. That's the life Solomon had, the life unlike many of us have. But it's so crazy, despite all these pleasures, you find this old man reflecting, and what's the first thing he says upon his reflections of life? Ecclesiastes 1. This is the very first words of the book. The words of the preacher. Solomon calls himself the preacher. The son of David. Duh, Solomon was one of David's sons. King in Jerusalem. Here it is. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity means breath. Vapor. Something that quickly comes and goes. Basically, everything in life, he says, is fleeting, ultimately empty, even meaningless. You know, that's actually the common refrain throughout the book. Everything under the sun is vanity. It's pointless. The repetition of this phrase, vanity, 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 throughout the book is for emphasis. In the same way the Bible says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We say holy three times for emphasis. We're reiterating God's holiness. Well, Solomon re reiterates the vanity of life 
at least like around 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil, all the sweat, all the blood, all the tears at which he toils under the sun? It's just a wild image, isn't it? Like you can just imagine Solomon, this king, sitting there alone in his palace, drinking from his golden cups the best wine in the world, surrounded by beautiful women, yielding the power to command tens of thousands of people to do whatever he wants them to do. And essentially he says, everything is nothing if everything is all there is. In other words, like, what's the point of all this, man? It's not as satisfying as I thought it'd be. And you might be here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're like, what does this ancient Jewish king know about life? Life is not meaningless. There's a ton of cool stuff in this world to pursue. Well, do you know a lot of your American heroes have said really similar things? You know, Tom Brady, after he won a Super Bowl, he said, there's got to be more than just this. Justin Bieber, in one of his latest hit songs, Lonely, says, what if you had it all, like I did, but nobody to call? Maybe then you know me. Because I've had everything, but no one's listening. And that's just lonely. I almost sang it, because that's a hit song, baby. <laughs> that's a good song, man. It's get me, I, I, he got me feeling sorry for Justin Bieber with that song. That is a good song. Halle Berry said, beauty is essentially meaningless and is always transitory. She even says it makes love harder. And really, what Solomon said thousands of years ago is timeless. Just played over and over again with different lives. It's like a hamster wheel with just different people chasing after nothing. And maybe you feel similarly this morning. Maybe, man, you have tried so hard to get what you want, and you don't have it. And you think, if I just had this one thing, this one relationship, this one job, this one promotion, this one skill, life would be complete, and you're brokenhearted right now. And there are, I know there are people in this room, some of you who are old enough to have gotten what you wanted and realized this really is vanity, isn't it? I got the marriage I wanted, but you know, it really doesn't satisfy me like I thought it would. I got the job. I worked, I was in school 20 years and I got it. I feel like it's empty. It's not as satisfying as I thought it'd be. I started this business and it's successful, but I'm looking for the next thing. It reminds me of uh, Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec, that great theological show on NBC. Andy Dwyer fails the police academy exam. And uh, someone asks, how you doing, Andy? And he says, I'm fine. It's just that life is pointless and nothing matters and I'm always tired. Also, I can't sleep. I'm overeating and none of my old hobbies interest me. <laughs> Maybe you feel similarly this morning. And that's why the Apostle Paul later wrote in the New Testament, for the creation was subjected to futility, meaning to emptiness, to meaninglessness. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Basically, what Paul reiterates in Romans is what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes and what Tom Brady said in the year 2020 and what Andy Dwyer said. That there is a God-sized hole in your soul that only he can fill. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and I want you to know we're so glad you're here. But did you know that the fact that you feel any 
essence of meaninglessness or longing in your soul that is not satisfied is in fact evidence that there's a very real God that wants a relationship with you. There's a man named C.S. Lewis. He was a great author, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He used to be an atheist, but became a Christian later in life. And he said that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. This is deep. Let me say it again. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. For example, a baby doesn't cry with hunger unless something called food exists that can satisfy it. A duckling is not innately born with a desire to swim unless there's water for it to swim in. Humans feel a natural desire for sex because there is such a thing as sex. And Lewis's point is that if I find within myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, earthly pleasures were meant to be enjoyed, but never meant to satisfy you. Only to arouse you into the ultimate desire, which is knowing your creator. Walking in relationship with him. All pleasures in this world are, are a foreshadowing or a copy, an echo, a mirage that lead me to the main objective of life, knowing God. That's why Augustine, who was a debaucherous womanizer early in life, who became a great theologian, said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. And Solomon here is just, just pouring out his soul, telling us there is no end to this horizontal search for meaning in life. That's why he says later on, chapter 3, God has put eternity into man's heart. He put eternity in your heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. Really every verse, every book in the Bible is in there to beeline us straight to the person of Jesus Christ. Who is the only hope that satisfies the human heart. Jesus promised later on in John, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. You want an abundant life? You're not going to find it in that degree or in that business or in that relationship. You find it in him. He says in John that I am the bread of life. Only I can sustain you. Jesus is the answer to Solomon's despair and to our despair. And so Ecclesiastes, really the whole sum of the book is you can have two options. Pick which one you want. You can have life under the sun, which is vanity, or you can have life with the sun, a life of eternity. Pick which one you want. And there's a lot of people worried about adding years to their life, but only Jesus can add life to your years. Life is meaningless without Christ, is the central point. That's the problem. There's an emptiness without Jesus. Well, if you turn to chapter 4 in Ecclesiastes, Solomon transitioned, and, he, and he, in all his wisdom, he points out, you know, there's something I've noticed. There's this emptiness of life without God, but one of the ways that people inevitably try to escape the emptiness of life without going to God is through another avenue, their career. Oh, I'm about to hit some souls this morning. We're in the city, baby. A lot of you have been working a long time. Let's see what Solomon says about our career. The wrong solution is the emptiness of individualistic workaholism. 
Whether you're here this morning and you're obsessed with graduating summa cum laude, or you're a mom who always needs to house clean, or you're in the marketplace somewhere, Solomon is a man who reached the very top of his field. He was a king. And he tells us, as he sits alone on top of his pile of riches, weeping, that focusing on your career will not fill your soul. This is a man who has everything he could ever want, but ultimately nothing he needs. Look at what he says, verse 7 of chapter 4. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Here's the summary. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So Solomon here is describing this individual who is motivated by greed or even by success, who, who probably is successful, but he, verse 8, says, has no other. He's alone. His only companion are his credit card points, his airline miles, his 401k. And this individual is work-obsessed. The text says that he or she is toiling. That word toiling can mean suffering. And those of you know who are successful in your field, you know there's a lot of suffering involved. A lot of, a lot of work. This man who's toiling is dealing with problems constantly. He's characterized by frantic busyness. You, you'd see this person hiding their phone under, under the dinner table, responding to Slack messages. You find this person working on the Sabbath. Probably don't even know what a Sabbath is. A day of rest. No. Too much to do. This person, if he or she ever does take a break, he rests from work. He doesn't work from a place of rest. To summarize it, he's restless. He or she's always worried about the next bonus or the next client or the next research project. Uh, it's the doctor who is buried in textbooks or charts and annoyed by patients. It's the CEO who can't sit down and have a conversation with an employee who's having a really bad day and just needs a hug. It's the person who only makes it to church if work isn't too crazy right now. He's getting up early, he's coming home late, constantly thinking about work day after day, night after night. Why, 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 why toil so hard? Because I'm so important and what I'm doing is so important. Psalm 127 says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. It's pointless. Why is it vain, psalmist? Why is it vain, Solomon? Because it only leads to isolation and emptiness. Verse 8 says, this toiling worker, his eyes are never satisfied. There is no end to all his toil. And he asked, who am I doing all this for? They got money, they got achievements, but they have no family, no real friends. What good is it to conquer the world if you have no one to share it with, right? As the great theologian Meek Mill, the rapper once said, if you don't have friends and family, what do you really have? I mean, we got rappers spouting wisdom. There's a reason on your deathbed no one ever asks, in their final moments of life for their diploma. 
No one ever asks for their Amex black card when they're about to die. What do you want when you're about to die? You want people. Because eventually everyone learns that life is all about relationships, not about work. John Steinbeck, the great author, said, when a man comes to die, no matter what his talents and influences and genius, if he dies unloved, his life must be a failure to him and is dying a cold horror. You see, eventually all of us will learn, whether now or before we're about to die, that life isn't about our career, it's about people. Knowing and loving real, actual, embodied people. Why not learn that now, Solomon says. Why not adjust and call an audible and reorient your life around people now rather than when you're about to die? And this is a basic biblical principle, right? Like in Genesis 2, God says it's not good for man to be alone. That's the only thing that was not good at the dawn of creation we, because we were made for relationships. If you're here this morning and you're lonely, that doesn't mean something's wrong with you. You're lonely because you're not a tree. You're lonely because there's something very right with you. You're lonely because you're more sophisticated than chat GPT. Like, you need people. And the reason you need people is because you were made by a relational God. You know, in fact, God himself is relational within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit for eternity have been relating to one another, loving one another, serving one another, submitting to one another. And we are invited into that eternal fellowship and relationship. We were made to know and love people. And so you need to prioritize people primary in your life, particularly people in the local church, the family of God. This is why Solomon's going to say later, two are better than one. Because relationships, you'll find out, are more satisfying than achievements. Friendships are more valuable than any wealth in the world. Can I just honestly ask you, as you just, you and, you and God, you don't talk to anyone about this, just you and God, honestly, if you were just assess your life, assess your calendar, assess your energy levels, assess your finances, what has the true affection of your heart right now? What takes up the most real estate in your mind? Is it how can I love and care for this person in my gospel community? How can I encourage this member of my church? How can I make Jesus known through my service to the church? Or is it, man, I really want to make another 10K this year. Or I really hope I hit that sales goal. Or I got to hit this GPA level. What do you think most about? Is it Jesus and his family or is it you? And the reality is many Americans are fighting against the very created order of the universe by focusing on them and their career over Jesus and his family, our family. And this is why, if you look at American Christianity, there are so many Christians in America who would say, I have a relationship with God, but I don't have a relationship with a particular local church. I don't have brothers and sisters that I've committed to. As I'm so busy with school, I'm so busy with work. And if I need spiritual help, you know, I got YouTube, baby. I got my YouVersion Bible app. And if, if I need people, I'll go to a service one time. Trip Lee says that that's, like, that's a lot like saying that you have a personal relationship with your dad. And so you connect with your dad one-on-one. -on -one, so you can't be bothered to connect with the rest of your family, like your brothers and sisters. But the problem is that your dad has asked you to be in relationship with the rest of your family. He's invited you to, fa to family dinner. And neglecting your brothers and sisters is hurting your relationship with your dad. 
And ignoring the church, the family of God, is rejecting God's dinner invitation. But we justify this form of orphan Christianity that is antithetical to every example of Christianity in the Bible because we have been forged in the fires of rugged individualism. My hero is John Wayne, Tom Brady, Halle Berry. People who picked themselves up by their own bootstraps, focused on their career, and got successful. The problem is a lot of these people are depressed, man. And there's no such thing as a Christian in the New Testament that is not a committed member of a particular local church. You just won't find it unless they're a missionary in an unreached people group. And yet there are so many Christians trying to do everything on their own. We make decisions alone. We think about ourselves on our own. And what quickly happens is we take the time and energy we should be giving to God and to our church family, and we give it instead to our work. And then if we have any leftover free time, I'm going to numb myself with another exotic vacation or maybe a cocktail on a Friday night. And any leftover time after that, I'll come to a service. And this, Solomon is going to tell us, is a reversal of priorities. And so no wonder it's not working in our culture. No wonder we live in one of the most overworked countries in the developed world. No wonder, according to the American Institute on Stress, 83% of American workers suffer from work-related stress. 83%. Look to your left and your right. At least two of you, out of the three of you, are really stressed from work right now. And what's the fruit of all this labor? We got a 50% divorce rate because work matters more than our relationships. You know there's a divorce in the U.S. every 42 seconds? During this sermon, there's probably been 10 divorces. According to a Harvard study, 61% of young adults feel lonely. 61%. We are so work-obsessed, so individualistic, that we don't even bat an eye anymore when Hopkins asks people to work back-to-back 30-hour shifts. Like, that's normal. That is not normal. That's not okay. Hopkins can call me if they got an issue with that. (laughs) Human beings aren't meant to work 60 hours in a row, man. You know, it's normal in our society to move our entire career, to leave all our friends, all our family, to, to go to a city where we know no one so we can make an extra 20 grand a year. You know, there have been people in our church who have said, man, I love RCC. I, I, I want to commit to Baltimore. I'm growing spiritually here. I have d- real spiritual friendships here. And I got another job offer in, I don't know, Kentucky or, or California. And I, I, I'm getting offered like 30 grand or more, more a year. But you know what? I'm going to stay in Baltimore, turn down the extra 30K, because I care more about growing in my faith and doing life and reaching this city. And the people who have made those decisions, when they told their friends, they told their family, they look at them like, what? You're going to give up your career for a church? This is the culture we live in, man. Christians are saying that to one another. We live in a society where it's more shameful to be fired than it is to be an absent parent. And what is the root of this overworking? Well, uh, Stephen Vallis, who is a professor of sociology at Northeastern University, says that the reason Americans sacrifice everything, including our relationships for their career, is because unlike Eastern cultures, 
where your value is found in your community, in your relationships. In our Western culture, he says, quote, work is the single most important way of proving your worth. You want to feel significant in this world? You want to matter in America? Go be the best in the world at something and make a lot of money doing it. And until you do, get in line. You don't matter. You just serve the people who do. And so we want to matter. In our, in our search for significance and self-actualization, many of us give all of ourselves to ascend up the steep slopes of Mount Olympus of our career ladders. And it is a treacherous cutthroat journey, isn't it? Whether you're a doctor trying to get into med school or you've started a business, on the way to the top are an infinite number of dangers, like job loss or pandemics that throw everything into chaos, market shifts, sexism that discriminates against you even though you're the better employee, corruption of leadership, and not to mention the relentless wave of millions of other strong competitors trying to throw you down so they can get to the top. And what happens in the process is that we become no different than the primitive tribes that sacrifice their children and, the, and, and all their valuables for the God that they worshipped. In the same way in our society, we sacrifice our children, we sacrifice our marriages, we sacrifice our friendships, we sacrifice our church life, we sacrifice our sanity at the altar of our God. Except our God is more sophisticated than the God of rain or the God of the harvest. We worship our career. We want to change the world. In the meantime, we hurt everyone in our path. And the truly, truly, honestly depressing, raw reality you find in Ecclesiastes 4 is that if you do somehow beat everyone else and reach the pinnacle, the Mount Olympus of your career field, at the top, walking amongst the gods, you'll find a familiar figure, a successful man named Solomon, who pops behind the curtain like the Wizard of Oz and says, it's all pointless, isn't it? It's not really worth it, is it? We worked all this way to get up here, and I kind of want to go back down. And can I encourage you that the good news of the gospel this morning is that you don't need to work to prove your worth. There is another who purchased that worth for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ means you, sinner, me, sinner, are infinitely valuable, not because we earned it, but because someone else paid the infinite price to make us worth it. You can tell something's value by the price being willing to be paid to purchase it. And God paid the infinite price, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross to make you valuable. You don't need to fill out a spreadsheet or to make a sale or to check something off your vision goal or vision board to be worth it to God. Jesus provides all the worth you could ever need through his work, his life, his death. And that's good news for the sinner this morning. We work not for acceptance, but from acceptance. Because Jesus did it for us. And Solomon says, essentially... There's a better way to live. 
In fact, you find the word better scattered throughout chapter 4. There's a better way for us. Since we are made righteous, not through our work, but through the work of Jesus Christ, let's change our priorities. Let's change how we live. Let's do life together. And funny enough, you know, that's actually the same conclusion Ashley Willens, who is a professor at Harvard Business School, presents to solve America's overworking issue. She says that the vast majority, this is a quote, the vast majority of workers are happier, look at this, when they spend more hours with family and friends. Oh, who'd have thought? The Bible's right. Except Solomon said it 3,000 years ago. Get on, get on the train, Ashley. No, props to her for saying this. I'm not, I'm not hating. She's great. We would all be in a little bit of a better place mentally if we started to focus on our self-identity and identification as a person on pursuits outside of work. Ooh, who'd have thought Harvard and the Bible agree? There is an emptiness in life without Jesus. There's an emptiness in individualistic workaholism. Can I present to you the real solution? Community. Can I use an even stronger word? Family. Everyone is meant to have a family. But did you know that there's even a more significant family for you, Christian, than your nuclear family? Than your mom and dad and sons and brothers and sisters and wife? There's an eternal family called the family of God that you've been invited into. Everyone who gets God as father also gets the church as mother, Augustine says. Did you know you're going to be, if you're a Christian, you're going to be my brother and sister in Christ longer than I'll be married to Sherry. Your and I's relationship as brother and sister in Christ will last longer than my marriage to Sherry because the Bible says there's no marriage in heaven. Now, listen, she's more important than you right now. But my point is, is that we have an eternal relationship that will never end. You're stuck with me forever, guys. Sorry. When you become a Christian, you are bought and you are brought. You are bought, meaning all your sins are cleansed and you're given the righteousness of Christ. And then you are brought into the church, God's eternal family. And I want you to see just really briefly four reasons why you need community over career that Solomon presents. Particularly life it's in Christ-centered community in the local church. Here they are. Effectiveness, help, comfort, protection. This is the solution to the, the void in your soul. Christ-centered community that offers effectiveness, help, comfort, protection. Let's start with number one, effectiveness. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. Uh, chapter 4, excuse me. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Success comes from cooperation, Solomon says. This is Solomon's version of teamwork makes the dream work, baby. And, you know, we see this in every area of life. I'm sure you do as well. Like, we're better when we work together, right? I see this in my job as, as a pastor. I get to serve as one of the pastors, not the pastor. We have a team of pastors. And that's a great joy, being able to share that burden together. The highs and lows. Our, our joys are multiplied and our sorrows are divided when we do things together, aren't they? We often tell church planners, don't go alone. Two are better than one. And you, you probably see it in the home, right? Like, guys, what would our homes look like without our wives? Like, there would be lava lamps everywhere and posters of Marvel and, and Thor and such. I don't know if I'd have silverware, honestly, if I was without my wife. We'd probably have all plastic silverware. Like, praise God, two are better than one. We need our wives. 
And this is particularly true of the church, right? Two are better than one. You know what's better than two? Three hundred. You know, Paul tells the local church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3 that when Christians choose not to live separate lives that are individualized and focused on their careers, but instead come together, do life together in this big secular city called Ephesus, it's really, really unchristian like Baltimore is, that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed to the cosmos, not just to the city, to the cosmos. The manifold wisdom of God is displayed. What the heck does that mean? It means if we do life separately as Christians, focusing on our own lives, no non-Christian is going to look at that and be like, wow, that's amazing. I'm like, okay. There's no manifold wisdom of God displayed if you're doing things on your own. But when, but when the people of God come together and commit to one another through all the highs and lows of life, through all the awkward questions at small groups and, and the, the, the little offenses when someone says the wrong thing and, and when different cultures get together and you're like, oh, you like that, I know you like that, and, but we're still committed to another. Through all that, when, when, when black Christians and white Christians commit to one another, when, when Christians in their 50s are sipping coffee with Christians in their 20s, when, when my five-year-old son is writing a letter of love to 70-year-old Miss Tina, who's an, an Asian widow, how's a five-year-old son doing life with a seven-year-old Asian widow? Because of the church, man. And, and when that's happening, when all this is happening, it says that this is a fireworks show to display the glory of God to the universe. And when's the last time you were loving a brother and sister so affectionately, so clearly, and you're worshiping with, worshiping with them so fervently that an unbeliever observed you and said, God must be real. Look at these different people like bringing meals to each other, hugging each other, genuinely enjoying one another. Paul says that when we do that, God's wisdom is shown to the universe. That can't happen if you're a solo Christian. Two are better than one. Here's the reality. If you want to fulfill Ephesians chapter 3, if you want to implement the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 3 to be more effective with your life, you can't do that without being a committed member of a particular local church. If you're living an individualistic churchless life, Solomon warns you, you're like a severed toe disconnected from the rest of the body. And sure, you might be like, I'm part of the body. Yeah, I guess you are, but not really. You're on your own. We're meant to do life together as God's people because it gives us effectiveness in our mission and in life. Another reason you need community in the local church is help. This one's really simple. Verse 10, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. You, know, you guys remember that old commercial? Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Well, there are a lot of churchless Christians saying the same thing spiritually. You know, this is in the ancient Near East where if you fell in a pit or got stuck somewhere, there's no cell phones, there's no ambulances, no helicopters. If you don't have a friend, you're going to be in a 127-hour situation. You remember that movie, the guy hiking in the Utah? Gets his arm stuck in a rock, he has to cut it off and walk home. We don't want that for you spiritually. Have a friend. You need help, uh, Solomon says. You guys know this intuitively. You walk home 
alone at night in Baltimore City, and pe- someone will say to you, yeah, you should probably do that with someone else, right? Because it's, it's dangerous in some, some senses. Well, it's even more dangerous spirit- spiritually to walk alone. You need help. We see this all throughout the Bible in Acts 6. The widows are hungry. They need help. The church comes and helps. They provide food for them. This is one of the reasons why our church has a benevolence fund, to help those in need. We see this in 2 Timothy. Paul needs help. He's freezing in prison. He's alone. And some friends in the church bring him some cloaks, some coats, and uh, some books. We saw this a few weeks ago in Galatians 6, that we're called to carry each other's burdens. We need help. Joining a local church means you have an army of people ready to rally around you when you're in need. This comes in the form of meal trains, DoorDash gift cards, babysitting, rides to the airport, cleaning each other's homes, counseling sessions late at night over tea, encouragement when you're ready to quit, reminders of the grace of the gospel when we feel like a failure, friends, no, family, ready to help us get back up. And let me just encourage you, if you are a member of this church, these types of friendships don't happen on autopilot. They're like a garden. You have to cultivate them. You have to plant some seeds, water, and wait for God to give growth. And so if you're consumed with work, you're not really doing much cultivating. Is there anyone there to help you? You need the local church to be that help. The local church gives you effectiveness. It gives you help. And it gives you comfort. It's a great verse, 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? I'm going to quote that to Sherry tonight. It's a great verse. What's Solomon talking about here? He's saying, you know, you weirdos who like camping for fun. I don't understand you. We evolved into technology for a reason. I don't know why you like going in the wilderness in the cold with bugs everywhere, using leaves as toilet paper. I don't know why that's fun. I'll be at the Sandals Resort. You guys have a great time. But those of you that like camping... On a cold night, you might say, hey, friend, I'm freezing. Why don't you come over here? Let's have our sleeping bags next to each other so we can warm each other up in the most non-weird way possible. And that's what friendship is, right? Like, there's a lot of adversity in life. There's a lot of coldness in life. But having someone there with you to warm you up, to comfort you, it's necessary. And this is why we do gospel communities. We don't just do one big gathering where it's kind of like a movie theater. You just happen to sit next to other Christians and bye, see you next week. No, we do live together where we actually can meet in each other's homes so we can comfort one another. If you're not in a gospel community, that's why they exist. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that Jesus is the God of all comfort. He has comforted us in our affliction so that we can then comfort others in their affliction. Who is comforting you and who are you comforting? That's what the church exists to do. And this is fairly obvious, but technology cannot do this. You can't do this with Siri. You can't do this with Facebook. An Oculus headset cannot comfort you. Technology can aid a relationship, but it cannot replace a relationship. You can't keep each other warm online. You have to have, really, a local church with real people. Local church gives effectiveness. It gives help. It gives comfort. And this is the fourth and final benefit of community Christ-centered community and local church, Solomon tell us protection. Verse 12, And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you've ever been in a fight, which I hope you've never been in a fight, but if you have, you know two-on-one is a lot better odds than one-on-one. And 300-on-one, they got no shot, right? If they're going to attack me. It's a good feeling when someone has your back, Right? 
It's a good feeling when someone says, I'm with you. No one's, if someone wants to hurt you, they have to go through me. That's what the local church is, you know that? It's like the Golden State Warriors when they sit on their way to the championships, multiple championships. There is strength in numbers. Who are your numbers? Who has your back? Satan is going to come after you. I think it's First Peter that says he, he awaits like a roaring lion to pounce on you. Who has your back? So the local church exists to do. It's a bomb shelter against attack. My friend... That brother needs some community. <laughs> my friend Garrett Kell, just to end this point, my friend Garrett Kell tells, uh, he's a pastor in Virginia, tells the story of two guys he knows that were members of the same church. One guy, we'll call him Bill, who was an older believer, and there was another younger believer that had just come to know the Lord, and he, this younger believer came out of a background of alcoholism and other vices, and this older believer and this younger believer both worked at the same plant, and they would regularly meet on their off shift or their lunch hour for prayer and encouragement. And one day during that time, the younger believer shared with the older believer that he had a deep struggle, like many of us do. The younger believer said to the older believer, every day I drive home and I reach this fork in the road. And at this fork, if I go left, I go to this bar and I get hammered and forget all of my problems. And if I go right in the fork, I go home and be with my wife and kids and spend time with them. And the younger believer said to the older believer, I got to be honest, I really, really want to go left today. I really want to forget about my problems and the pain I'm feeling. And the older believer prayed for the young man, said he was there for them, and they went back to work. At the end of the day, the young believer left work, went on his way home, and as he got in his car, he decided, I'm going to go to the bar tonight to forget about my problems. I'm taking the left on that fork on the road. I need this. And it was pouring rain outside, and the young man was driving in the rain. And as he got to that fork in the road, he saw something through his wipers and through the rain standing in the middle of the road. It was Bill, the older believer, with a sign pointing, with an arrow pointing right towards the younger believer's home, saying, go right. And the younger believer turned right and went home. And he said, ever since that day, I've taken that right turn home. And he's never gone back. And he said, it's because that man loved me, not just with his words, but with his deeds. He was willing to inconvenience his life, to get a little wet in order to serve my soul. And that's what the local church is, friend. It's a group of people standing at the fork of the road saying, go, to the right, go right. Go to Jesus. We need the local church for protection. Local church gives us effectiveness. It gives us help. It gives us comfort. It gives us protection. As we summarize all this, honest question as we reflect on everything that's been taught from Ecclesiastes. If you could have one today, which would you choose out of two options? Would you rather have an additional 100 grand a year added to your salary? or three really close, lifelong spiritual friendships in a local church? Honestly, ask yourself. You can have either one today. 100 grand every year, add it to your income. We'll, we'll even say tax-free. <laughs> or three really good friends. If you chose the friends, you're starting to understand this text. If you chose the money, you're missing it. And pray to God you get it. 
As we close, I went to a funeral yesterday. Many of you know one of my good friends, Clint Clifton, died last week. I shared that in our welcome last Sunday. And at the funeral, there was at least 1,000 people, maybe 2,000 people. It was full of, of folks who, whose life had been impacted by Clint. And uh, during the eulogy time, Clint's uh, oldest son, Noah, came and shared a eulogy about his dad. And he said that my dad used to take me on mandates every Friday. And usually it was McDonald's or Burger King. Man, this was so moving. Um, usually it was McDonald's or Burger King, but one Friday night or Friday morning, my dad took me to the cemetery. And he was like, who takes a nine-year-old to the cemetery? <laughs> and Clint took his oldest son, Noah, at the time, to the cemetery and stopped at a random grave with a tombstone with a guy named Mark that they didn't know. And Clint asked his son, what do you know about Mark? And Noah said, well, the tombstone says, beloved father, brother, husband, friend. And Clint looked at his son and said, whatever's written on your tombstone is your legacy. That's the only thing people will remember about you. How do you want to be remembered, son? What's going to be on your tombstone? And Noah, Clint's oldest son, said, I never forgot that. And his final words in his dad's eulogy, he said, this is what would be on my dad's tombstone. My dad loved the church. My dad loved his family. My dad loves Jesus. What's going to be on your tombstone? If you have a small amount of time and you want to have a disproportionate amount of impact with that small amount of time, give your life to loving real people. Real people in the church. And this is why we do membership. And here's the call to action for each of you. Everyone has an action step this morning. If you want to take your next step and obey the text of the word of the Lord in Ecclesiastes and in Ephesians and other parts of the Bible, I want to challenge you to commit to a local church. It doesn't have to be ours, but commit to a church. Here's the action steps. Ready? If you're a member of our church, there's a covenant on your chair. Look at it. Pray over it. And determine, do I want to do life again with these people? To be effective, to help, to comfort, to protect. If that's a yes, during the communion time, bring that covenant up and drop it off on the table. You don't have to do it today. If you want to take it home and pray about it, you can turn it in in, in the following weeks. That's okay. But if you remember, recommit to, the, to this vision of the church. Here's something super important. If you're not a member of this church and you're a member of another church, make that commitment to that church. If you're not a member of any church, join a church. It doesn't have to be ours, but join one so you can do this. If you're interested in joining our church, can I encourage you, after this service, we're doing a gospel community open house. There will be like 13 gospel communities on the first floor. Go check it out and sign up to join one so you can do this with people and they can do it for you. And if you're interested in doing membership with us, which is our way of saying we want to do this together, you can, on your connection card, check, I'm interested in membership, I'm interested in RCC 101, turn it in, in the welcome table in the back, and go to RCC 101, which is on February 5th, to learn more about what it means to be a member. And listen, I get membership's a big deal. Maybe it's too much. Let me help you out. Instead of doing RCC 101, you're not ready for that, next Sunday we're doing something called Pizza with the Pastors. Sounds awesome, right? Pizza with the Pastors. Next Sunday, after the second service, come 
and uh, we're going to have pizza, and you can ask any question you want about the church, or about me, or about Pastor Wilson. Come learn more about what it means to be a member of the local church. Okay? And as we close, we have the great privilege today, don't we, that we don't just have community, that we have Christ. Because unlike King Solomon, Jesus' kingdom will not end. His glory will not fade away. And there is a king that is greater than Solomon, a king who is different from every other king, a king who did not squander his wealth on women and gold, but gave up his wealth to save us and make us his family. Jesus is the greater Solomon, friend. And if you don't know him, can I implore you, come to him and let him change your heart. Let him make you into the non-individualistic, selfless lover of people that he is. And let's celebrate this morning that he is in us and he is with us and that we are never alone. We have each other and we have him. This is the better way to live. This is wisdom. Let's stir one another up to love and good deeds. Let's not neglect meeting together. Let's display the manifold wisdom of God. Let's help each other and let's do life together. Amen. Let's take these steps in obedience to the word of God today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your word, for community. We ask, God, that you would help people to obey your word, to not live an individualistic, self-focused life on just them and their uh, nuclear family, but they would enter into the family of God and do life here together. You would help every member to recommit, if they so feel called, every non-member to join a church, maybe our church, and help us to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine displaying the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenlies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.